Hello and welcome back to Spotlight on Women in Health Ventures, the podcast powered by Thea, a nonprofit dedicated to empowering women as entrepreneurs in healthcare. Ariana Hasoli is the head of biological sciences at Colossal Biosciences, a breakthrough biosciences and genetic engineering company focused on developing radical new technologies to advance the fields of de-extinction, species preservation, and human health care through genomics. In January 2023, the company secured an oversubscribed $150 million Series B financing led by the United States Innovative Technology Fund with participation from Bob Nelson, Jazz Ventures, among others, bringing total funding to $225 million. Ariona was previously a postdoctoral fellow in the George Church Lab at Harvard Medical School from 2015 to 2021, where she focused on developing and optimizing novel genetic tools for multiplex mammalian genome engineering, including mammoth de-extinction and building a virus-resistant human cell line. Her authored publications include characterizing different populations of human-induced pluripotent stem cells arising during reprogramming, setting up a human cell bacteria co-culture model to study how biocontainment can be exploited for probiotic development, and multiplex editing of TAG to TAA codons genome-wide in human cells. We are so excited to hear her story, the founding of Colossal, and what it means for humanity and the environment to bring back the woolly mammoth, Tasmanian tiger, and more recently announced, the dodo bird. It is a pleasure to have you on today. Um, We are thrilled to hear about your role as head of biological sciences at Colossal Biosciences, which is a company that is developing this radical new technologies to essentially advance the field of de-extinction. So I, I think it'd be helpful to take a step back and, and help us learn about the origins of gospel and really going back to how you got involved with the church lab. Yeah, how the journey started. I was a grad student um, finishing up uh, my work on stem cell biology and I was looking for uh, postdoc opportunities. And of course I was aware of George Church and his uh, amazing work. He's a synthetic biology pioneer. And but I hadn't necessarily considered um, that path for my career, for my, the next step of my career. Um, but I was reading uh, this book, and books change lives sometimes. Um, I think I've mentioned this quite a few times before. Uh, it's by a very um, prominent paleogeneticist called Svante Pabo, and it's called Neanderthalman. Uh, and in that book, George Church is mentioned. Uh, and essentially, paleogenetics is this field of advancing genomics uh, of ancient DNA. So they were able to uh, build technologies that use sequencing not only for modern uh, species, but also for extinct species. And they were able to do that for mammoths, cave bears, Neanderthals, and so on. Um, So it's kind of like a field in and of itself. Uh, But George was already thinking a step ahead of how to use the sequencing data uh, in order to uh, study evolution, study development study and potentially bring back lost species. So the journey started actually with George Church, who um, really wanted to use the cutting edge technologies that were being built uh, or were built at that time uh, for the use of uh, the extinction and um, restoring lost ecosystems. 
so this was almost uh, more than a decade ago. Um, and then uh, I joined his lab um, in late 2015 uh, to work on some, um, some of these big projects, including the extinction that require multiplex genome editing. That means you modify the DNA more, uh, in more than one uh, location, in more than one place. And of course, you probably have all heard of the great CRISPR technologies. Um, they often have their limitations in terms of how multiplexable they are. But George uh, and his lab have pushed the limits of um, how these and other technologies can be used in modifying uh, and building complete genomes. So um, those are some of the projects that I worked on in his uh, lab. Uh, and just about uh, potentially maybe two, two and a half or three years ago, um, ben Lam, who's our co-founder, uh, heard about uh, the great work on the extinction that uh, George was doing, or George was pioneering. And he heard uh, about the journey when he was listening to and watching a 60-minute segment on a trip uh, George uh, did to Siberia to collect uh, mammal samples. And I was very fortunate to actually be with him, uh, with George Church, uh, on that journey. And so uh, it was incredibly exciting. We were able to work well and uh, collaborate with some uh, of the Russian colleagues, the Russian, uh, Russian scientists there, uh, especially the ones that are interested in uh, ancient DNA sequencing uh, and mammoth step ecosystem. In addition, we were also interested uh, in checking out this concept of uh, geoengineering um, that is run by uh, another Russian uh, scientist duo, the Zimovs. Um, they run this place called, called the Pleistocen Park, um, where they're trying to test how restoring uh, a lost ecosystem, like the mammoth steppe ecosystem, um, how that could mitigate uh, climate change effects. Because with the warming of the of the globe, particularly Arctic warming, um, that is actually more accelerated than average uh, warming temperatures across uh, Earth. Uh, so that's accelerating the decomposition of the organic matter that's trapped in the permafrost and released in the form of methane and carbon dioxide that exacerbates the effects of um, global warming. It's great that you were able to uh, see how what you were reading in the books is really in coming to life and is in the works and is being pushed forward in in the lab. And I was yeah. able to contribute, yeah, and I was able to contribute to it as well exactly. and continue exactly. to do so, which is even more amazing. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So at, at what point, because this is all during during the time that you were in the in George Church's lab, at what point did you, George Church, think about transitioning the work that you were doing in the lab into a full-fledged company? Yeah, I mean, that's, as a scientist, uh, um, as an academic, that was incredible, an incredible feat by uh, our CEO, Ben Lam, and um, the rest of his co-founders, because, you know, uh, in George's lab, um, we didn't have that much funding. We actually have very had very limited funding, some seed funding that was uh, initially given to George from Peter Thiel, mm -hmm. uh, but there was barely anything else, right? Uh, I don't think uh, funding agencies necessarily uh, rush to fund, uh, fund projects like this, although it's a very, very important project, but they probably could consider it as a fun hobby rather than see the extent of the, um, uh, of the importance of this project. 
but um, you know the colossal leadership saw that um, and um, they approached George they co-founded the company with him they were able to find incredible investors who believe in the mission and what this could mean for restoring um, a lost species restoring a lost ecosystem um, so rewilding efforts as well that are involved um, in a in a project with this scope uh, as well as conservation because at the end of the day we have extant elephants that are facing threats uh, every day. We're losing them in incredible numbers. All extant species of elephants uh, are in the endangered um, list. And so we are thinking about how can we save that those species and thinking outside of the box by um, using what we know about the evolution uh, of the proboscideans, uh, which includes mammoths and elephants, and potentially using these phenotypes that were very well characterized and adapted for cold climate mm -hmm. uh, onto a, a species that is very, very similar uh, genomically um, and confer some of these cold adaptation traits that could make these extant species of elephants more adaptable to colder climates that gives them a wider range uh, of habitats uh, in the near future. It's great that you had folks like Ben Lamb, who he himself is a serial entrepreneur, has gone through the process of company formation, storytelling, and raising funds. And the fact that he saw mm -hmm. the potential in this technology, I think bringing his business background and combining it with yours and, and George Church's uh, scientific expertise, I think makes for, for a powerful team. And I'm sure with that combined really helped raise some of the investments and get get folks on board that really believed in the mission. So, but for you personally, when you were thinking about leaving academia and coming in as, as you said, the first biology hire, what was the thought process that you had gone through? Such a great question, because I think I was very sure uh, when I was uh, in the depths of doing my, my postdoc in George's lab, that I was going to pursue an academic career. Um, mm -hmm. Even though uh, joining George's lab was a little bit of a, an eye-opening experience for me because I've, I discovered this amazing um, entrepreneurial environment. Mm. Um, a lot of very talented individuals joined George's lab uh, because they're, of course, uh, I think for the opportunity to be quite independent uh, in, their, in the pursuits of the, of the projects that they are most passionate about. And George allows that. I think George's lab is very, very unique in that, uh, in in that aspect. Uh, but I was uh, even even so, uh, even while seeing a lot of people around me go on and fund, uh, found very, very successful startups, uh, I was uh, very set on on potentially giving the uh, academic track uh, a try. It had always been my dream. Um, so, uh, but I think. Because I was working on uh, on the extinction project, when this opportunity came along, I just couldn't pass it. Uh, because if you are, I'm a conservationist. Um, uh, I really care about using technologies and the talents we have uh, in order to save habitats and and species from extinction. I think we we all benefit from a more biodiversity and not mm -hmm. from less biodiversity. Mm -hmm. And so um, it's just an, it was a, a, an opportunity not to be missed. And so I had to 
you know, it didn't take much convincing. I was like, yes, uh, I'm on board. <laughs> when did I start? <laughs> I couldn't miss that. And, and sure, of course, everyone will have the, you know, everyone who jumps from the academic track and does something else will probably still have, you know, the question in the back of the mind, you know, uh, giving it a try, you know, being, being a, a, a professor, being a, a mentor. But I do that quite a bit uh, in my day-to-day -day job, right? I think we have an amazing team now. We have collaborations with uh, universities as well. Uh, I, mm -hmm. We work closely with Jordan's lab and, uh, and the team there, the MAMA team there. So I get, uh, in a way, I'm privileged in that I get the, a bit of a, the best of both worlds, right? Mm -hmm. Because I, I do have still the foot in the door of academia through our collaboration with Harvard Medical School and Jordan's lab. As well as um, um, you know, through my day job uh, as uh, mammoth lead at bio uh, and uh, biology uh, head at Colossal. So I, I would like to delve a little deeper into the science and the technology and how exactly you're going about using CRISPR to try to achieve this de-extinction mission? Obviously, we don't use just CRISPR technologies. We use uh, we use other technologies as well. But it all starts with uh, a sequencing, right? We, we want, and samples, actually, even, even before sequencing, samples. So we are very fortunate that we have great collaborators. And there has been um, some prior work that's been done by um, great paleogeneticists as well on sequencing multiple mammal genomes. So a combination of uh, prior uh, sequencing efforts to ours plus our collaborators so we have um, a full view with multiple genomes from multiple mammals and, and uh, extant elephants as to what makes uh, these species different from each other at the genomic level and so we tabulate these we work with a ta very talented comparative genomicists to also uh, uh, look for these relationships of uh, genotype to phenotype, right? Because we are specifically interested in cold adaptation traits that made mm -hmm. um, mammals from elephants. And that includes so like the shaggy hair, they're known for the curved tusks, the dome-shaped cranium, the adaptations um, to cold temperatures uh, via their hemoglobin affinity to uh, oxygen as well as their fat deposits. And so, um, so how do you go about, you know, teasing apart um, and and uncovering those, um, uh, you know, genomic changes to what trait is displayed uh, relationships? So uh, that's also in addition to the list uh, of genes that we uh, are very confident in, at least getting us to the first variation of mammoths, so the first um, version, uh, or that we call Arctic elephants. We will continue this cycle of discovery uh, to uncover even more uh, genes that make this um, make a mammoth, you know, make the, uh, that could make an elephant into a you know, full mammoth. Um, so those are some of the, that some of that work that goes on uh, at the sequencing, at the collection of specimen sequencing, and then um, and then uh, analysis, bioinformatic analysis. And then what we do is, of course, we identify the loci, the genes, the specific uh, genomic location of where uh, these changes have to be made and use CRISPR and related technologies. Uh, some of the cool new um, uh, you know, developments and, and um, 
versions of CRISPR are precise edits into a single base pair, right? Mm -hmm. And so that makes the technology more multiplexable. Uh, and that's very important because, you know, we have a list of 60 or so genes, but, um, you know, even doing, uh, making one change generally can take a little bit of effort. Um, so, so Colossal is interested in really scaling up uh, the edits and optimizing these technologies and building new ones. Um, so, so multiplex editing is very, very important and core to the work we do, uh, whether uh, through via CRISPR or other uh, gene editing technologies. Uh, and then, of course, you go through the process of um, identifying that you made the change by sequencing and doing some functional assays to identify that you made the right change. Uh, you want to screen cells, so you have, you know, the best edited cell with the, with the, the fewer uh, of targets. And then uh, we can convert these cells into induced pluripotent stem cells, which are pluripotent stem cells uh, that have the potential to differentiate into any cell uh, in the body. So they're quite magical, uh, these cells. Uh, they are essentially similar to embryonic stem cells that you probably have heard about, mm -hmm. but they are uh, derived artificially using transcription factors. So you can start with any cell in the body, uh, and then you can, uh, you can uh, reprogram them into these iPS cells so it's essentially going back, like set, setting back the clock of, mm -hmm. uh, of a cell. Uh, you just move a, a minimum of four genes uh, that are classical. Of course, there are variations of the reprogramming technologies, but uh, this is one of the classical methods to derive them. And so this en enables you to uh, differentiate the cells into any cell lineage um, so that you can test for phenotypes and traits. But in addition, what is also core for us is that we can uh, derive gametes, right? We want to be able in the future not to go into elephants or any other endangered species to harvest these germ cells, like ugonia-like cells, for example, these oocytes, these mm -hmm. egg cells, and sperm, you can actually make them in vitro, make them in a dish. This will be core to uh, a lot of uh, conservationist uh, mission, right? Because I think in addition to helping the mammoth project, a lot of these technologies can, can be used for saving these species. Um, you do need them to, you do need to scale up uh, these technologies. And that's the reason why another great project that we're pursuing uh, at Colossal is uh, the development of artificial wombs. Yeah, so these are, these are phenomenal efforts and very ambitious efforts that you and your team are, are pursuing. Why? did the team choose woolly mammoth to start with? That's a great question. Um, I do have to say that we have announced recently uh, the pursuit of the extinction of the thylacine or Tasmanian tiger. Uh, we've announced it recently. We're super thrilled about it. So it's a, it's a parallel species. Uh, we are going to bring back in, uh, in parallel to the mammoth, of course. Okay. And uh, in addition, we are the extinction company, so we actually have some very, very cool uh, ideas about other species that we want to bring back that we haven't announced. So that will be exciting uh, in the mm -hmm. near future. But as we think, when we think about how, why, and or, or which animals to bring back, mm -hmm. I think if, uh, we usually um, ponder this question a lot and consult, of course, um, with experts, conservationists and scientists, because it, in addition to bringing back the species, you have to consider whether there is a habitat for the species mm -hmm. uh, still left. 
and we believe for the thylacine, given that they were uh, only uh, they were only went extinct as uh, as recently as 100 years ago, there is absolutely the habitat for the mammoth. Same thing in that while the um, Arctic uh, ecosystem is has changed um, in the last few thousand of years. Reports that the last of the woolly mammoths roamed the Arctic as uh, recently as 4,000 years ago means that um, they're st still able to thrive in the, in the cold Arctic environment. So the habitat has changed a little bit, but not uh, drastically uh, as to not support uh, their thriving populations anymore. Uh, in addition, we want to we think about what the impact it has on the environment. And for both these species, they have a very significant uh, impact on uh, restoring a, a richer ecosystem. So, for example, the woolly mammoths, the mammoth steppe ecosystem was probably one of the most uh, biodiverse ecosystems. It was essentially kind of like African safari, uh, you know, yeah. of the of the Arctic. So, and it was a grassland ecosystem, uh, which meant that there were a, a large amount of megafauna, uh, of course, predators, and and this contributed to uh, a higher cycling. Uh, in higher cycling ecosystem as well, right? So there was a, there was just a lot of turnover. Whereas currently, for example, the Arctic uh, tundra doesn't support a large amount of animals uh, because it has been uh, taken over by more shrubs and uh, and mosses and coniferous trees that are very slow cycling. So restoring uh, that ecosystem to a, a mammoth steppe ecosystem will have implications in restoring this more biodiverse uh, habitat. In addition, because uh, warming climate is releasing this, uh, this or, these organic matters that were trapped in the permafrost uh, uh, in the form of damaging uh, greenhouse gases that can even accelerate the global warming and exacerbate the effects of global warming. Uh, we believe that this faster cycling uh, ecosystem uh, can actually contribute to keeping that organic matter cycled into uh, flora and fauna rather than being released in the atmosphere um, after decomposition. So we want to be able to bring back animals where there is a conservationist uh, angle. There is a conservation angle, such as uh, for the in the case of woolly mammoth. It can be all of the technologies we built directly uh, benefit uh, elephants. Uh, it has to have a, a habitat impact, uh, an ecosystem impact, so it increases biodiversity, and both Tasmanian uh, tigers as well as mammals uh, achieve that. In addition to this even bigger role in uh, climate mitigation, mm -hmm. and we have that definitely with the mammals. So there are several factors that uh, come into play when we consider which species to bring back. And as I said, I think you always have to consider whether the original habitat is intact or semi-intact. Right, right. So it, it sounds like you and your team very much take a very methodical approach in terms of the species that you select and you work closely with conservationists to, to ensure that these are the right species that are not only beneficial to bring the species back itself, but also helps to enhance the, the biodiversity. Now, you have your skeptics out there. You have people that that pushback on on this this de-extinction project and mission. I mean, I've seen papers in Nature Ecology and Evolution that they argue that spending limited resources on de-extinction rather than extant species could lead to net biodiversity loss. 
So how, what is your, what is your response to, to folks like these authors that wrote this paper, as well as others that might not buy into the, into the mission? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think they have a point in that conserva- uh, conservation efforts should always be ongoing in parallel, right? We're not substituting conservation parties here. We, in fact, collaborate with many of them because they are core to our mission. Uh, zoos, other partners. We're not taking away resources because we actually tapped into a different kind of investment source, which is investors and venture capital, right? Not competing with conservation entities for this for these funds. They were taken from investors who are very passionate about this mission. So, so we actually opened up a new source of funding for this conservation work, even though we are a for-profit, uh, without having to tap into compete with uh, NGOs and so on, right? So, so that's not entirely correct. In fact, that is not correct at all. <laughs> <laughs> However, our mission is to actually always collaborate with conservation community because there's it's crucial. However, it's not the only answer, right? Because if it were the only answer, that would have solved all the uh, problems already, and that's actually not the case. Mm-hmm. And, and I think uh, absolutely, I think we we want to have these conversations so that uh, we can explain uh, our thought process and rationale, but we also want to debunk some of these points, which is, yes, conservation is crucial. It will never, it should never be stopped. And in fact, part of our mission is conservation. However, we didn't necessarily compete. Exactly. Exactly. I think any large scale effort, like more broadly conservation requires a multifaceted approach. And I think that the private sector can get things done. And you, you've seen that, you saw that with COVID vaccine development, you give the money to, to your companies, Moderna, Pfizer, Biotech, and look what they did in a short amount of time. And doing the same with Colossal, and you'll, you'll continue to, to push out great work and accomplish your, your mission. Now, thinking to the future, how do you and your team envision being able to measure long-term outcomes to demonstrate success? I mean, I think it's in a way quite a simple answer is like we're, we're going to contribute to bringing back a lost species. And so you would see that in a birthing of the Arctic elephant calves. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you'll see it at a larger scale, which is we'll have actually videos of these um, you know, devices that support growth of thousands of these uh, of these animals at the same time that will contribute to their thriving populations in the future. So that's actually visible, quantifiable work. You'll see it. Other other things that we're interested in is, uh, as I mentioned, we we're, we're interested in, conser- in the conservation aspect of these species and really and proxy species. And so, for example, we are interested in population genomics. Right. I think it's important to collect and sequence as many uh, individuals, uh, and in this case, elephants, as well as um, you know, any marsupials that are uh, closely, closely related to, to the Tasmanian tiger. Uh, and so that we provide this fuller picture of what a thriving population would be like, because it's not just about bringing one, you have to bring back thousands. So we want to be able to, to confer genetic diversity into these animals that you are bringing back. But another aspect that is very, very important is the technologies that will be will be built, uh, especially on multiplex editing, for example, or you know, ex-utero gestation, 
that will be very important and can apply to pretty much anything, right? A lot of mm -hmm. mammals and marsupials in, the, in this case, but even human applications. So while Colossal is not interested in using those technologies uh, currently for um, even human work, those technologies, given that I, I, I view mammalian genomes, for example, that they behave quite similarly. All right, so if, if you target one, uh, if you target, let's say the mouth genome is very, very similar to when you target the human genome or the elephant genome. And so a lot of the technologies you built uh, on the editing, uh, uh, for example, in the editing aspect can apply to uh, multiple species, including human. And so Colossal will eventually be able to license those technologies to entities that are interested in other applications beyond just animal conservation and the extinction. So those are, uh, you know, that's the, the less visible aspects uh, of the work, right? Not the birth of a, of a mammoth or not the birth of a thylacine, but uh, very, very relevant and important technologies that will help uh, advance human health uh, as well as other conservation work. And I imagine that, I know, I mean, Colossal is not pursuing human applications of the technology, but if other companies would want to, I imagine there might be some ethical ethicist pushing, pushing back. And I don't know, what are your, what are your thoughts on, on that, on extending the work to human applications? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's obviously, obviously up to the, our regulatory agencies to determine, right? For other applications, we just provide the technologies and mm -hmm. how they're used is not really up to colossal. However, we are very interested in continuing these conversations, right? I think some of these technologies can be very useful even in the future when we think about extraplanetary life and so on. You know, I think the most important thing is to think about these questions, it's these ethical questions with an open mind, mm -hmm. being able to weigh in equally the positives and the negatives so that we are more unbiased in our determination of what these technologies can do while also mitigating uh, the negative side of them. I think completely shutting down just because there is maybe some controversy or you think mm -hmm. a certain way, shutting down those conversations actually will be detrimental for progress. So I think I would always encourage people when we think about what the potential applications could be here to have that open, honest conversation, be transparent. Colossal will always do that because it's very, very important to see where it could take us while also instead of shutting it down, maybe we can find ways to mitigate that if there are negative uh, mm -hmm. effects to this and all technologies have their side or negative effects, mm -hmm. uh, how to mitigate rather than completely shut it down. Right, right, agree, definitely agree. And in terms of intellectual property, so a lot of the work started in the church lab at Harvard, like does Harvard own the IP because it was at in the church lab or how does that, how does that work? We have a very strong collaboration with the university as well as it pertains to our strong collaboration with George's uh, lab. Mm -hmm. George being a co-founder of course of the company. Mm -hmm. And we have a research agreement, you know, Harvard and, and Colossal do an extensive one, you know, that regulates our partnership with them. And so we're very thrilled and we licensed a lot of the technologies from there. When you, when Colossal was raising their uh, Series A, um, what, how, what was that experience like um, telling the story, telling the science to, to investors, to your point about being able to talk about very technical work to 
sometimes people that are non-technical? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. Uh, and definitely, I, I again, I have to thank, you know, my mentors, uh, who are sort of like the co-founders of the, of the company, because definitely I learned a lot from that experience, right? You want to be able to also show people the science, the details, and, and, and the, the minutia of, you know, the, the experiments you're conducting. But I do have to say that a lot of the investors have very technical people uh, mm. and staff. So it's a mix in terms of the investors that don't necessarily come from a science background. They're still very, very well informed. So uh, I try my best with the analogies. Of course, as I said, it's it's kind of like learned. You know, you try to sort of like explain something and then ask follow-up questions that whether that was clear or not. But it's also a combination of being, uh, you know, People who are on these calls are very well informed as well. You know, it's not something that they have no clue about. They've read, they've done their due diligence there, mm-hmm. and uh, quite a few of them are, are uh, come from scientific background. So while they may not have exactly that expertise, they are able to follow along. So, uh, but it does require a little bit of a um, more thought into it, right? You cannot just go on and drone about science. You just have to always uh, explain it in such a way that it can be clear even to someone who doesn't have that expertise. Uh, but in general, they, they, they are able to follow along quite well. 100%. I agree because as, as scientists become, come more to the forefront and come more under the general public eye, especially in the COVID era mm-hmm. where people became more attuned to what biotech is doing, I think it's more important than mm-hmm. ever to make the work more accessible so that there's more yeah. buy-in. Otherwise, then you're going to have people yeah. in Congress trying to to stop you from doing your work <laughs> because they just don't understand. Yeah. They just don't. They just don't understand. It's not as accessible. Um, so, yeah. And I do have to say, you know, we we get a lot of people who ask questions, but you can clearly see that they've done their background uh, their background work and research, mm-hmm. uh, and are clearly well uh, very well informed, right? So when you try to explain and I'm trying to also uh, ask them whether they follow. They're like, oh, yeah, I, I, I totally know. But not everyone is like that. Of course, yes, I kind of have yeah. to cater to. I think it's a, it's a balance of trying to explain in more detail or being a bit more technical with people who appreciate it because they kind of have done the background work uh, and people who are just like, they've maybe read one thing, but they don't know all the details. So you they, they are interested in learning a little bit more. So, yeah, as I said, I think it's a case by case and just always uh, learning something new or, uh, or a new way to approach answering these questions. Yes. Science communication is tough. It's an art. It's certainly an art. Science <laughs> <laughs> it's very, very, it's very valuable to have that. Yes. Yes. So reflecting on your time thus far with Colossal, what have been the great greatest opportunities that you've had there your highs at the company, and then as well as some of the greatest challenges you've experienced? Yeah, I, I mean, there's always challenges along the way. It's, we're still pretty, pretty brand new, just a little bit over a year actually now. Mm-hmm. I was, I think some of my challenge was to actually, um, personal ch- challenge was to transition, right, from academia to a company setting that's always going to be slightly different. And we've grown quite a bit. So being able to always be in, in growth mode, right? Because we have so many talented people who want to come and join us. Uh, and I've grown uh, the team quite a bit. So, and of course there are, you know, that requires some level of learning, right? Because straight out from academia, I've been mentored before, but not to this extent, not to strike the, the lead position. 
at least not for just one project. It's actually for like a mission. So, but that's both a challenge. So that in, includes some, you know, a learning curve, but I think that's also the, one of the most exciting things about it, right? So we have this great mission and I'm on this journey with a lot of talented people and just being inspired every day by essentially the end goal, but also by how excited people around me are, right? So, and being able to to keep a balance of having to to do the great work that's needed to be done for this, uh, and also kind of never losing sight of that goal. No, I can I can feel your passion, the way that you're talking and have been talking throughout our conversation about the work that you're doing, and I'm sure the people in your team around you also kind of help fuel that that passion day in and day out. So. I, I look forward to following since, since you guys are so transparent, I will certainly be making sure that, that uh, the team is hitting the, hitting your milestones and, and ultimately reaching, yeah. reaching your goal. And finally, do you, do you have any parting words for those that are looking to transition from academia as a scientist to more of an operational role at a biotech leading teams, leading biology teams like your like yourself? Yeah, I think I would say people just, um, for individuals who are interested in both, I think there are opportunities, of course, to explore it and you don't have to make a decision right away. You can give it a try, right? And then always uh, opt out or, or pivot to something else. I think I have to say, uh, having been in both, there are great opportunities to do great work in both. Now, of course, the journey worked better for me in biotech, of course, but that's not to say, you know, you can view labs like George's uh, where people do incredible work at, uh, in, within the setting of, uh, of academia. So I think it's whichever environment kind of like suits you most, there's great work being done in either. And I think it's just, it's a matter of personal preference. I wouldn't say that I have some great wisdom there. It's whatever people decide, I think they should always push themselves more. Uh, but there are just very, very, uh, a lot of opportunities as well in, in, in either in academia or biotech. I do have to say that biotech operates at a faster pace for sure. Mm-hmm. And, and with a with a great advantage that you can see impact in real world much faster than in academia. So it goes it goes beyond that paper you publish that is crucial, right? It's an essential, uh, it's a fundamental block to the science that a lot of the companies will, at least biotechs will do. So those are very, not to be underestimated, uh, the work that, um, that comes out of academia. I mean, that's kind of like the building block of science. Mm-hmm. But in terms of seeing real world impact right away, I think probably it's generally true that you see that more in the context of um, industry rather than uh, academia. Amazing. Well, thank you again so much for, for being on with us. I very much enjoyed hearing your story, the story of Colossal, the, getting into the weeds of what the what you and your team are working on and how you're really trying to go. It's not just the de-extinction, it's, it's just species preservation and, and uh, enhancing biodiversity. So there's so much more than just the, the de-extinction. So it was very refreshing to hear all of that. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much, uh, Shabnam. And I think this was an incredible opportunity. I hope 
as I mentioned, I hope I did uh, George's Lab and Colossal's justice, uh, telling some of their background and their story. But more importantly, I, I hope that it brings a little bit more clarity what we're trying to do to, mm -hmm. to everyone out there who listens and maybe even inspire some of them, not just to follow us from afar, but uh, to even join us. So I look forward to potentially that happening, you know, someone uh, coming to contact me uh, saying they came from listening <laughs> to the Thea podcast. Of course. Thank you all for listening. Visit us on Instagram at Thea Healthcare, on Twitter at Thea HC, and on our website at theahc.org for more content and to join our vibrant community of young professionals, entrepreneurs, investors, and thought leaders in healthcare. Special thanks to our amazing producer, Sarah Wetzler, and audio editors, Asim Jain, Nikita Gupta, and Taylor Liss. If you're enjoying our content, please consider supporting Thea by visiting our website, theahc.org, to donate.